You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Annie, where are you coming to us from? I know you are like a sea leveler at its finest, but I don't know much more. Yeah, I actually live like on the beach. I'm in uh, California, LA area uh, right now. Why does everybody talk about you as an East Coaster then? Am I confused? So someone else asked me that recently, and I don't know where that started, but I I am from Michigan. Um, I don't know if that's like East called East Coaster, like I would East Coast of Lake Michigan. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, so. Grew up in Michigan, um, but have been on the West Coast for like six years. All right. Well, I didn't know you were a Michigan, Michigan Kander. Michigander, yeah. Is that how you say it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A Michiganian? (laughs) We're in in Michigan because he's, Bracken's in Wisconsin, I'm in Minnesota, so we're in the Midwest. So I'm curious exactly where you're from. Uh, Detroit suburbs, grew up, lived there. 25 years. Okay. Why the move? I originally moved out to Arizona, actually, um, for work. And since being out west, there's no part of me that ever wants to go back east. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'll probably stay out here. So it just suits my lifestyle and my personality way more. How how much of actual LA are you in? Are, are you in city? I'm in Redondo Beach, which is um, pretty close to the city. I'm about like 20-25 minutes southwest of downtown. And that's not a huge culture shock coming from the Midwest? <laughs> it is. It's definitely a huge culture shock. I don't think that I would have ever like chosen LA to live in um like out of anywhere I could live, but it kind of just happened and kind of embracing it and also enjoying like living on the ocean, which I never thought I would do either. So um, that's kind of cool. Couldn't have hurt with the heat in Utah. True. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to bring up Utah. Do you want to know why? Because Annie, you've done something that upsets me and you don't even know it. Okay. (laughs) Do Do you have any idea what that could be? Um... No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know each other personally, so this is the first time Annie and I are talking. But I like to bitch and groan and gripe about going and racing at elevation, living at sea level, and it being nearly impossible to perform your best. And then you go out and do what you freaking did in Utah, and you now you're making my excuses look like a chump. <laughs> and that upset me, Annie. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, you you better be. This ego can only take so much. <laughs> what, what am I missing with this whole live at sea level, go dominate in Utah? Because Utah's kicked my ass every time I've raced there. What am I missing? Um, you're not missing anything. It's it hurts. It's not fun. It you know kicked my ass too. I think I struggled probably way more than a lot of other people on that course. But um, I. 
I don't know. I think part of me just chooses to embrace like racing that altitude. I love being in the mountains. Like that's a huge part of who I am. And I like to train in the mountains um, and get out there as much as I can. So I think even though I live at sea level, I do as much as I can up at altitude just to like get my body used to that feeling, even though I'm not, I'm definitely not acclimated. I, I am used to the feeling of breathing hard and like getting my heart rate spiked really quickly, like going up a climb. Um, and I think having been familiarized with that feeling going into Utah was a lot less shocking to my system. Kirk, that backs up what you said about Tahoe, right? That you went out there two weeks early and science yep. says that's the worst time to compete. But you said I was familiar with how it felt and I knew what my breathing was going to be like. And there's some power to that. I assumed that you were not doing that. So you're driving inland and then running up the mountains and getting to some sort of elevation and training. You're getting out of the valley. As much as I can. Yeah. And I spent like pretty much all of 2021 races were canceled up in the mountains just because that's where I'm happiest and if I could choose like one way to train um I would probably cut out like all the strength stuff and all the like speed work and I would just spend long days in the mountains so um that's kind of my happy place (laughs) yeah how high can you get within like let's say a two-hour drive of you uh within a two-hour drive I can get to um, definitely the San Gabes, which are the, that's the closest like big mountain range. Um, that's kind of like where. Is that like seven, eight? Um, so the peak of Mount Baldy is over 10,000. Um, and that's just like an hour from me. So it's not too far. And then. But in terms of like the time you spend, not the peak, the time you get in there, is that, do you spend a lot of in the seven to eight range or do you get to be above yeah. that a lot? Um, no, definitely don't get above that a lot. It's, it's hard to get above that. Um, the crest, so the highway that runs across that mountain range, highway two, um, is like anywhere from probably three to 6,000 feet. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where you're starting and then you can go up from there. Okay. Yeah. That's better than 10, 10 feet. Yeah. <laughs> I currently live at like 60 feet. So <laughs> 60 feet. Um, I live at 60 feet above sea level. <laughs> I'm feeling better now that I'm hearing you talk, though, because I didn't know that you were going up into the mountains as often as you were. So now I'm a little less self-conscious of my proclamation, we will say, but still <laughs> impressive nonetheless that you did what you did. Thanks. <laughs> Have you run up, um, what is it, San Jacinto? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah, I've, I've done that one a few times. I attempted to do, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, like, the Cactus to Clouds hike, um, but it's it's basically where you start at the base of, like, Palm Springs in the desert, and then you go all the way to the peak. And so it's over 10,000 feet of ascent um, in... I want to say it's like 10 miles or something. Um, And I tried to do that in the middle of a snowstorm (laughs) last year and made it probably like three quarters of the way up. But because of COVID, they didn't have the the tram running, which usually like you go, you run up and then you take the tram down. And so I knew 
I had to get down this mountain <laughs> and uh, there was no trail. It was just like, you know, breaking, breaking trail the whole way up. So it took me out like all day just to get to that point. And so I started descending um, and nightfall came and I was still going down the mountain. Um, so oh. I've yet to like really complete that hike in its entirety. But, um, but yeah, I've gone up the easy way, which is like the shorter back route a few times. That's your neck of the woods when you when you vacation, right, Kirk? Palm Springs, running up those mountains. I almost died up there. Not joking. I I made a trip planned to go to Palm Springs to run up Jacinto, which is like eighty three hundred feet of gain in like seven or eight miles. I think it's just you go up the mountain. But the nice thing when you live at sea level is you actually get to start at sea level in Palm Springs, so the yeah. whole climb doesn't kill you. Well, I went out there trying to run it and i got to 8100 feet which is like 200 feet from the summit mm -hmm. and a snowstorm hit me like it was all sunny down in the valley but i got up there yep. and there was a section there was a section of climb which was iced underneath the snow it had melted and froze melted and froze and it was a 20 yard section i said if i try to cross this i'm going to die and my gps told me i was 0.15 miles from the summit so I had to, I had 10 bucks in my pocket for the tram to get down. I was basically out of water, out of food. I had time my effort and I had to put my tail between my legs and go all the way down that fucking mountain. And it was the worst. So I feel for you. Yeah, been there. Oof. <laughs> Have you ever had that happen to you, Bracken? Uh, one time we were run hiking. We just wanted to make it up a mountain, but we were doing a boulder field scramble up to cut the switchbacks off because it was like a obnoxiously long switchback section, but there was an established route up this boulder field that was probably 800 meters long, but it cut out like three miles of switchback. So we were doing that and it started to uh, to flurry a little bit and started to snow a little harder. And then you know how it is in the mountains. All of a sudden, it's just there. And we had to turn around and get back down the boulder field because it was too much of a whiteout to go to the side and find the switchbacks. <sighs> and we couldn't see. I mean, you, you held your hand out in front of your face, and you could squint and make it out, and we were on a boulder wow. field. And, we, you know, it had been like 85 degrees prior, so we were in shorts, no shirt, shoes, no water. Because we were planning on making it a quick trip. This was in Colorado, and and yeah, so I was going. We were my brother and I. We were scrambling down a boulder field in a whiteout in split shorts. <laughs> like I know we're only eight hundred meters from the bottom, but eight hundred meters of a like a true boulder field is terrifying in a whiteout. I don't know how long it took us to go those eight hundred meters, but I guarantee it was the slowest eight hundred meter run of my life. <laughs> and we got to the bottom and it was suddenly up to sixty degrees and then I don't know, ten minutes later we're, we're jogging the trail out and it's back up to eighty five degrees and everything's clear and, and we were fine. So we probably could have waited it out, but in that moment, like time ceases to exist, you can't see anywhere and you just realize like, all right, we get down on my own two feet or or we die. And these stories are how typically they end in search and rescue. I want to yeah. continue this line of questioning now. Have you have you ever had any? Because you're an adventurer, um, Annie. Have you ever ended up in like a real rough situation up there, other than the one you described, which actually sounds a little scary? Um, so I've never been rescued, um, so that's good. <laughs> but yeah, I actually so um, I spent like nine months living in South America, um, mountaineering and. Um, 
also just kind of just hiking around the mountains there and solo adventuring. Um, and I did get lost for almost three days uh, in Ecuador when I was hiking around a volcano and kind of similar to Bracken, like a storm rolled in and it was whiteout conditions all day long for like two days straight. And I just like got really disoriented and couldn't figure out like what direction I was going anymore because I couldn't see the mountain. Um, like I was circumnavigating this this volcano. And so like I was going clockwise. And so the volcano should always be on my right hand side. And then it became a point where I couldn't see anymore and didn't know which way I was going. And um, I made a series of poor decisions, which like led to some other poor decisions because I started like getting in my head. And then I ended up going like completely in the wrong direction, like away from the mountain instead of like around it. Um, so that was kind of scary. And I eventually made my way into this like village where <laughs> this family took me in and like drove me for like six hours back to the trailhead. Like that's how far I had gotten off route. <laughs> Wait, you spent multiple nights out in the middle of you didn't know where by yourself or were you with other people? By myself. Yeah. <laughs> in whiteout, 48 hours of whiteout. Mm -hmm. so, I assume you had packed decently well. You had something, some clothing? Yes, I was prepared for, I think it was supposed to be a three-night trek anyways. So I had enough food and stuff to get by. And the place where I had been hiking was, like, there was plenty of water on the route. So, like, surviving wasn't really an issue. It was more just being completely disoriented and not knowing where I was and, like, not like the map that I had wasn't great. Um, it was a very, um, like it, that route isn't traveled very often. So it was like, I couldn't find as much beta on it as I probably should have gone into it with. So it was kind of scary. Yeah. Just not knowing where I was and like being in a foreign country in such a remote place where like the nearest, um, like even like the nearest village was like miles and miles away. So um, once I realized I was off route, it became less about getting to my destination and just about finding another human to like help me get away, like get back to um, the trail. So, yeah. What were those nights like? Uh, <laughs> those nights were grim. <laughs> it was, um, it, it's crazy like what happens to your mind in those scenarios like you get to this like really dark place and start wondering like like worst case scenario like what's gonna happen like how like is this the end like what it, like what does this look like what am I like how much food do I really have how long can I survive on these like you know packets of ramen and stuff that I have in my backpack so yeah, it was definitely getting sketchy. Like I was, e I wasn't eating a lot because I was scared that I was going to be out there a lot longer than I had anticipated. So then I was kind of malnourished, and um, and then like worse decisions get made when you're not like properly fueling and you're hiking for hours and hours and hours. Um, so and at altitude, like you're already kind of 
disoriented. So were you able to see well enough to like, I assume you had a tent of some sort to set it up in a decently, I don't know, protected shelter location, or were you kind of just like feeling your way in and this seems okay. I'm setting up here. Yeah, I was, I was safe. I was fine. Um, I had shelter, I had food, I had water. Like I had all the basic needs to survive. Um, it was very cold and very wet and that becomes really uncomfortable when you're, um, you know, on the side of a mountain at altitude and like you're trying to stay warm. Like I had, I had enough fuel to boil water and to like, um, warm up at night, but like everything was kind of damp, you know, that feeling where like all your gear Mm -hmm. is damp and it's never really drying out because it's just constantly raining. So like anytime that it was that the rain would let up, I would, um, try and like shake out and dry my gear off. But then like it never really, it was always kind of just like saturated. My feet were wet the entire trip. Um, Mm. even with like changing out socks, there were so many water crossings too, where like, even if it hadn't been raining, like my feet were getting wet all the time. Um, that's just like how the terrain is out there. So it was just very uncomfortable. Did your feet become an issue? Um, yes, my feet, my feet are always an issue. Like I, (laughs) I I have like very sensitive feet and they're very cranky and give me problems all the time. So like that, that scenario is not ideal for me. Just wrinkly feet for three days straight. Yeah. And I have, um, I have Raynaud's too. So like you have Raynaud's and you Mm -hmm. were soaked for three days straight and cold. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So were your hands and feet functional? Um, not really. No. Well, that, that adds a component. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you just like flippantly say, I was fine. I was safe. But I was soaked for three days and I have rain odds mm-hmm. and all my gear was cold and wet. Yeah. <laughs> She's downplaying it. Uh, Kirk, have you worked with anyone with rain odds? Uh-huh. In the gym. Yeah. Okay. I coach a guy right now on the East Coast who has rain odds. And there was a race he did where it was like 68 degrees and he went through a cold water crossing and afterwards couldn't get his temperature up in time. And his hands, he sent a picture after the race, his skin looked like mine. And then his hands were just a zombie hand. Yep. Purple. (laughs) And that was that, that was 68 degrees and he couldn't move. He couldn't use his fingers. Wow. And that was, that was 45 minutes at 60, 68 degree weather. Like three days of wet and cold with rain odds is no joke yeah yeah when it's below like 50 i'm in mittens because my hands aren't functional it's like game over Mm. (laughs) so ocr is like challenging for me when it's you know like the tahoe (laughs) conditions for sure that sounds miserable i mean we spent weeks and months trying to plan out gear for any race that could dip below 60 and have to touch water because it's like water, I'm sure with you it's the same, water seems to like instantly, it's the catalyst for a flare-up. And so, yeah. oh, that yeah, that sounds terrible. Your gear has to be on point then. Yeah, I've learned, yeah, those experiences you learn a lot from and like you realize quickly how important gear is and certain pieces of gear more than others, like you know, solid Gore-Tex boots for me, for me is huge, like a warm 
like sleeping bag that can dry quickly like that's critical for me and like lots of just like layer like insulation um all of that yeah if someone came to me kirk and said hey here's the deal i love being active and i have rain odds what are the activities i should probably look into mountaineering would be way down my list of, <laughs> of recommended activities and yet that's that became your lifestyle that's wild yeah i didn't i didn't know that i had that until i got into mountaineering actually i started like realizing cuz i grew up in michigan where like it's cold and you just kind of deal with it like you're like you're round i was still you know going outside running playing sports in the snow and i think um, I grew up skiing a lot actually. And like I started skiing when I was three years old. And, um, I think that there were just a few too many, um, really like cold days where I let my feet and hands get too, like as a kid too cold and didn't like say anything. And I think I got like frostbite a couple times and just never fully recovered from that. And then now, like later in my life, I'm realizing um, the long-term effects of that. So there's like certain toes that like, it doesn't even have to be that cold, but they just go numb like really quickly. Um, and then they become really painful too. And same with my finger, like the fingertips, um, get like really like tingly and cold, even when it's not that cold out, it's really sad. So, um, yeah, learning to navigate with that. Is that a genetic condition or is that an actual like learned condition that your body like somehow ends up in? Do you know? Um, I actually don't know. I know it's really common, especially in females. And I remember um, a girl on our cross country team in high school had it so bad that like she would miss like half of the meets that we would have because like we'd be running in the snow and her she just couldn't run. Um, when it was that cold and I never had that problem at least from what I remember growing up it was only until like more recent years where I've started realizing how big of a problem it was Um, and I first noticed it with like skiing and snowboarding like my feet would get really uncomfortable and like unbearably painful just like being in the boots too long Um, and so sadly like I've kind of stopped skiing and snowboarding as much because of it like it it just became really 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 painful i had a friend growing up and we ended up at college together who had it and there's there like anything else there are levels to it in different degrees where it affects people but i always felt terrible for her she'd she'd walk to class in college and if it was windy or cold and, and humidity plays a role into it as well but if it was damp she'd get there and just be all blotchy and full of rashy and hivy and her fingers wouldn't be working she couldn't take notes for the first 30 minutes of class and it just it manifests differently with some people but Mm -hmm. yeah it's like you said with a girl who misses cross-country meets that's some people just have almost no tolerance for the cold and the wet yeah i certainly would say that along with mountaineering if you were to ask someone who had this condition would you put ocr in the list of things that you should probably <laughs> pursue because championship season doesn't always happen in the warmest of weather now does it um i, I want to go back to your mountain story real quick because i got a curiosity there um i feel like we like i don't know as like trail runners and stuff i'm the same way i'm like an outdoorsman and i go out there to like be alone with my thoughts and recenter and that's like kind of the best part like you must obviously have part of that in you with these solo ventures but i have to imagine like 
the mind games, like when you're, it's, it's only, you're only in your own thoughts for how many days that was your plan. That's what you were seeking. And then to be alone in your own thoughts in a situation, which you don't expect has to be like, Oh, I, like the worst feeling, right? Without any, with like all uncertainty, like, were you able to like talk yourself out of that situation and keep your mind right or no? Because I don't know how I would have done in that situation. How'd you keep your cool? Yeah, it went, I had like ups and downs. Like it would, um, it's crazy. Like thinking back on it, I definitely wasn't right. Like it was, I was full on like panicking and um, like my confidence in myself and my navigating like was just depleted. Like I had, I had no idea what I, I felt like I had no idea what I was doing, even though like I had spent several months up until that point doing lots of like solo adventures and navigating and backpacking and all of that. Like I knew what I was doing, but at the same time, as soon as something goes wrong, that like triggers your, um, like your sense of safety and your sense of like, um, I don't know, just where you're going and what you're doing. And it it just has you questioning, like, why, like, why did I do this to myself? And um, what the hell? I asked myself that about halfway through every OCR race. Right? (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it was definitely a struggle. And like, I think I had to talk myself, like, even just like hour by hour, like, okay, my goal right now is to get um, to that like river that I can see, you know, half a mile down the, the, the mountain. And like, I would get to that point and sit down and collect my thoughts and like eat something or drink something. And then like, and just take it like step by step. Um, and then it got to a point where I could see a village, like way for like, maybe like a few miles, um, down from where I, where I had like camped the night before. And so that was like my goal. That was like my end point was to just get to that point and I would get closer and closer and closer, but then I would, I would run into barriers. Like I'd have to like go up and over, um, like a hill that like seemed like it was possible to go up and over, but then you'd get to the top and realize it was just a a cliff. Like you'd get cliffed out and then have to like backtrack for a while and go around, find another way. I was off trail at this point. So that adds a whole nother challenge to being alone in the wilderness. Like you're, you're just navigating terrain instead of like knowing, okay, I just have to follow this path. So yeah, it was definitely it was definitely an interesting experience to say the least. That's the problem that people run into, and that's where you get in the real trouble, especially when you can't see. Is you'll end up getting yourself into a position where you can't safely get yourself out of, and you didn't know that you got yourself there. And then you look around and you realize you have to backtrack, but you realize yeah. what you have to backtrack is almost impossible to go the opposite way back down, and people get stuck, and then you're in like real trouble. So I'm glad that didn't yeah. happen to you. Yeah, and you get like stubborn too, where the point to the point where like you know it's close, like you're getting close, and you want to just take what you think is like the path of least resistance, no matter what. And you'll you know encounter a roadblock. Like I remember having to, like I remember getting to this river. It was like a white water, like raging river, 
and I couldn't figure out any way other than crossing this river to get to where I needed to be. And so it was really scary. It was like, um, I can either, you know, go back. It was getting close to nightfall at this point, and I could either go back and, like, try and find another, get to higher ground and, like, really scope out the landscape and figure out, is there another way? Or I can take the risk and, like, try and get myself and my all my gear across this river by myself without dying and, like, hope that it works out and then I'm that much closer to where I need to get. So, like, decisions like that become way higher risk when you're by yourself without any form of communication or, you know, way of, you know, getting help, so. And? What'd you do? So I did, I ended up crossing that river. What was your strategy? Because I've thought about that oftentimes. You see it in a show, a survival show or a movie where people get to a raging river. Mm -hmm. I always think, what would my strategy be? Would I start up as high as I could and try to like bounce rock to rock safely? Or would I try to just find the cleanest path where I know I'm going to be swept down on an angle that doesn't have impediments in my way? What did you do? Yeah, so I spent probably like an hour or two just walking up and down like the bank of the river trying to find, first of all, the shortest path, like the the least amount of steps you need to take, the better. Um, so figuring that out first and foremost, then figuring out, okay, where are like the rapids, where are the like, you know, highest risk places that I should just try and avoid altogether. Um, and then I have this heavy pack on me that weighs, you know, 50 pounds or so. So I'm like literally unpacking all my gear and like chucking it across this river to try and like minimize what's on my back. Cause it makes you really unstable when you have like a heavy pack on you. So did you make all of your throws or did any of them come up short? Um, I, th- I think I got everything across safely, actually, which is okay. a miracle. <laughs> um, I took my boots off. I chucked my boots across. And um, yeah, I actually went, I went barefoot, which I don't know if that was the best decision or not. But um, I did get across and uh, it was sketchy, but I made it. And that was that. <laughs> That's a nightmare situation. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're going to have to squeeze these things out of you because you could have you could have made this quite the story if we didn't pry you. If I ever crossed a river and my life depended on it, that's the first thing I would have told you. I'd have thought, my name is Kirk. I, I crossed the river and I lived. Just <laughs> get that out of the way. You're just casually walking us through yeah. it. Yeah. Why? Something that I'm asking. I know then you found the village. And I'm very happy for you. And you're here and alive, which is great. Why do you do this with this solo stuff? Like what? That's not a typical venture f- for, I don't know, anybody really. But like, why Why the solo trips? So a few years, well, I guess, I don't know. There's a, kind of like a long backstory to this. But um, after college, I, I guess the short version is like I went and worked in corporate America. Like, you know, followed the very typical like American route that, I assumed I would be on for like the next 30 years working this like corporate nine to five life, um, climbing the corporate ladder. And I found myself in this like interesting crossroads where my 
business that I had been working for was being sold off to um, a bunch of different, I was in the commercial financing world and my company was being sold off to a bunch of different banks across the country. And um, I was, you know, in my late twenties and had, you know, the decision to make whether I wanted to really focus on my career. And if, if that was the case, the best decision was probably to leave and find a new job somewhere else because it was looking grim for a lot of us employees on like whether or not we would have jobs at the end of it. And, um, I made the decision to stick around and it really paid off for me, um, quite literally where they, I worked for General Electric, um, and they, offered me like a big bonus to stay till the very end because they just needed people basically to just keep the lights on until, um, until it was over. And so I stuck around and got paid out really well. And it put myself in a position where I could, like I had enough saved up that I could take some time and, you know, go explore and, do things that I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do that early in my life. Um, but this wasn't a fresh out of college, go explore the world before starting life. You did life and then took your break. Right. Yeah. So I, yeah, I worked really hard for several years, um, did like kind of the grindy corporate world that um, definitely looking back on it, I don't know how I survived that long in that environment because it was, it was tough. Um Bracken and I both left traditional traditional jobs to do what we're doing, so I yeah, like we get it. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's a different world, and but but at the same time, that was all I knew. Um, like I went into school in college, like kind of with a single purpose, and that was you know to get a good job and become like financially independent, and you know work my ass off until like I could retire. Like that was just like what what you do I guess like or at least that's kind of what I had ingrained in my head based on like you know my family and what how I was raised and just like the people around me and the what my peers were doing so that was all I knew and um it was it was tough but like at the same time I felt fortunate that I was I had a job like I went to college during the recession and um, a lot of my friends graduated and didn't even get a job. So I felt super fortunate to have that opportunity to be working at a company that, um, paid me really well and, um, supported me. So, yeah. So anyways, moving forward from that, um, that left me at this crossroads where I was like, okay, do I want to go and just immediately go back into this world and like work for a different bank and do the same thing somewhere else? Or do I want to like take a step back and maybe explore and like live life a little while I'm young and healthy and have the, you know, financial means to do it. And so that's what I chose to do. And, um, I didn't at that point have anyone in my life who was in that exact same scenario who could like come with me and like live this wanderlust life um, that I wanted to go do. And so I had to decide that like I I would just do it on my own. And, um, and that meant doing a lot of stuff that I wanted to do by myself. So 
it made me, it, I learned a lot in that year of just, you know, traveling by myself, um, going on big adventures by myself. Um, along the way, I luckily met a lot of people who I then was able to travel with and climb with and um, do, do stuff with as well. But, but a lot of it was on my own. Mm. All right. And that wasn't something you did like on the weekends beforehand? You'd be like, I'm in the bank working for the man during the day, but then on the weekends I'm jetting away. This was like a whole new leaf you turned over? Um, no? A little bit. Um, you know, when I was working, I was like a total weekend warrior. It was, you know, as soon as I finished on a Friday, I was driving to go climbing or um, go hiking for the weekend or whatever it was, um, usually with friends or coworkers or whoever was interested. Um, being in Arizona, there was like a big community of outdoorsy people who I latched on to pretty quickly. Um, so that was awesome. But, but yeah, like as soon as, as soon as my job ended, I think I was on a plane like two weeks later to South America. Like it was a very quick turnaround. <laughs> I didn't have a whole lot of time to like prepare for it. So I just, you know, made a leap of faith. <laughs> wow. Bracken, you kind of did that, actually, didn't you? Yeah, but not that quick. Well, you had other things to think about, like your kids and your wife. That takes yeah. time to move those pieces. It does, but still, I mean, two weeks, that means you already had you one of two things. You either had the gear, you had your plan, you knew where you wanted to go. You In the back of your mind, you knew, like, this is a place that I'd go to. Or you just made a snap decision and gathered that all together in two weeks and jetted. Yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was some planning behind it. Like you can't just, you, you can't just hop on a plane and like hope for the best. Like I, um, I actually had signed up for a mountaineering program. So as soon as I got to, I started in Ecuador and as soon as I got there, like I had something lined up where I was going to spend three weeks learning like the skills I needed to do all of this safely and with like confidence. And, um, and so that really helped like propel me and, and also it helped me learn a little bit more about like the, the country I was in and the people and the language and everything. Like it, it eased me into the solo adventures that would come after that. You said before your, you felt compelled to work that grindy corporate life based on your goals and, you know, the way you were raised. Going then back towards the the wanderlust, free spirit adventurer, was which one of those was more of the way that your the expectations of your family were, were pointed? Were you expected to do the corporate world and it was a, a, a shift or were your parents like pursue your passion and try to find a way to make money? Um. I've, I'm really fortunate in that, like, my parents don't really, like, I've never really felt um, a huge amount of pressure one way or the other. It's, it's all kind of myself putting pressure on, on, like, wanting to succeed in one way or another and, you know, do well in school. I was never, like, I don't know, I... It, it it was all kind of me putting that on myself. Um, but at the same time, I think growing up and um, 
And then, like I said, being going through school during kind of like a financially tough time for a lot of people, um, my family, seeing like the effect of that on my family as well as like the people around me and being being in Detroit, I think it um, it definitely looked differently. I think that we were hit a lot harder than other places were. And so it definitely lit a fire under me to say like, okay, um, if I, if I don't, I I don't want to, you know, be reliant on my family to like take care of me after this. I want to be able to live my life and do what I want to do and, um, be independent. So that meant kind of putting aside maybe what, like, maybe would have suited me better in terms of like choosing a degree or a field of study that like really interested me and kind of just pursuing what I thought would be the best in terms of like job security and, um, and finding like something that would be more sustainable. So was that, was that reflected in your youth where whatever you want to do or was, did they have a point of emphasis where were you an outdoors family? Were you a studious family? Was sports a big part of you growing up? Um, sports were a big part growing up. Uh, my family, like, isn't very athletic. Like, I am, like, the athlete by far of anyone in my family. Um, so I think it was definitely more, like, academic focus. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, they supported me in everything. It was, like, as a kid, um, I think I was, like, a little bit of a wild child. I was, like, running around you know, always like running around in the neighborhood, like meeting up with my friends, riding my bike, like digging stuff up in the backyard. Like I couldn't sit still. I wasn't like a kid who sat um, and like played video games. I was Mm -hmm. definitely more of like an active, like athletic person and put in sports like from a young age, did gymnastics, did um, like played soccer from a really young age. I skied and then in school, like played soccer, basketball, volleyball, um, started cross country in middle school. And then, um, yeah, it was, I was like all over the place. (laughs) Did you focus down in high school or did you keep doing everything? Uh, in high school, I just ran. I, I had hopes of playing soccer in high school. I was, I was really good at soccer as a kid and I think I think a lot of that probably just had to do with the fact that I could run for hours and I had like good endurance and speed um but then once high school came along and I was playing indoor um after the cross country season like getting ready for uh for soccer in the spring I realized that like I didn't have the skills that a lot of the other girls had. And it it became really apparent that like running was probably a better option for me. I didn't end up making the team. And then um, the track coach was like, okay, well, you're going to come do track now because uh, like we need you. <laughs> and so that's, that was my life. Basically all of high school was just cross country and track. Yeah. I really want to know the origin of sport for you because like you've really blasted onto the scene lately in the, the running OCR world. And you were on some people's radar, but not everybody's. So obviously there had to be glimmers of uh, greatness early on in your days, right? 
I would assume, and I want to get to that actually, why your biggest breakthrough just happened because you know you maybe you could have a fluke of a race and pop one, but now you've had two, and now you're kind of screwed because because <laughs> now this is ha- who you have to be. Yeah, you know, you've just earned the right to be extra nervous and feel that extra pressure before <laughs> every race. It's a privileged position to be in. You worked hard for it, but I just want to continue that origin of question, which would be then like, like how. Like, what was your beginnings of running like? And were you accomplished? Or was this something like a slow burn for you? Yeah, I was. I I don't know. I'd say in, in high school, I was like a very average runner. I wasn't um, particularly great. I I was decent for my school. Like, I was usually like, you know, top two on the cross country team or and also like in the, my events and track but um it never I never really saw a future with it like it wasn't I wasn't getting college scholarships or anything and so you weren't fast enough to even to get offers to run no I think I got like a couple offers from really small like d3 schools but um ain't nothing wrong with that true very true I didn't like really consider it um to be honest like it was really hard to, um, like, I, I don't know. I think I had like a big pull to go to university of Michigan from like, you know, I had family members who went there. I had like a lot of my friends were going to go there. Um, and I visited the campus and just like was, it's, it's pretty impressive when you go there and like, you see, you know, all the facilities and you like see what the football stadiums like. It's, it's tough to like see all that and then say, "Oh, maybe I'll maybe I'll just turn that down and go run at like a small little school um and not really know where that would even lead me." So, um yeah, I definitely chose like school over athletics at that point. Wow. And then you didn't um you didn't keep the running up in college or did you? I think it's like my sister did the same thing. She chose to go to school based on uh, education and she could have probably run somewhere if she chose, but she did that and she kind of let it go mm-hmm. for a few years and then refound it afterwards. Did you let it go or did you keep it going? Um, I would say running never like left my life. It was always there in some form, form or another. I, um, I ran a little bit on the club team at Michigan. Um, so we would like, I would go to almost all the practices every day and then we would like go and compete, um, at, you know, other, we would go to invitationals, we'd go to like nationals. They went a couple years. Um, and, but to be honest, it was not like, I didn't take it very seriously. It was really more of like a social thing for me. Um, it was like, a way for me to meet more people and um like I just enjoyed going and running with people after class um and I'd really wasn't I wasn't very focused on it so um yeah never running's always been there but it it was definitely not like center stage at that point well I did a stint um my first corporate job was in Madison Wisconsin so I lived right on Madison's campus Mm -hmm. I was like kind of the upper 20s weird guy who lived and hung out with like the college kids because I just happened to live close to campus. But I would use their indoor track in the winter and Madison had a club track team. 
you know, uh-huh. the people who couldn't make the real team. And it was full of not non-slouches. Like, it was full of legit runners. We would go and do interval workouts, a couple yeah. of my buddies and I. So, like, you were kind of accompanied by good runners, I believe, at some point, weren't you? Like, the track oh. clubs are typically pretty legit, even if you're 100%. not on the real roster. Yeah, I I mostly just did cross country. I didn't do, I didn't actually go to any of the track meets, but um, yes, like it was, I think that there were some people on the club team who could definitely run with the varsity team, if not beat some of the varsity team. Um, And also the thing about club is like, it's um, undergrad and grad students. So like, we had a lot of people from the cross country team who were, you know, getting their graduate degree and running with us. So, um, yeah, it was very competitive. (laughs) Okay. I was just curious about, I was curious about that. So you were among some high level running still, you didn't completely let it go. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Were you even at that time going on little excursions Was spring break different for you where you'd find a mountain or were you doing the typical college thing and the mountains were on hold? Um, yeah. So spring break for me was, I was also on the snowboarding team. You really, you really play it close here. You, yeah. I went went there just for a degree. I didn't really do anything. I also ran club cross country (laughs) and I was on the snowboarding team. We, this, so we weren't like competing. It was really just, I mean, I guess some people were competing. For me, it was more just like, Club cross country and snowboarding were just really fun parts of me with school. Like we would go as, I guess you guys are probably familiar, like in the Midwest, um, skiing and snowboarding is very different than it is, you know, out West or even like on the East coast. Like all we had were these like landfills that were converted into ski resort. I don't know if you want to even call it resorts, like little, like tiny ski hills. I broke my arm snowboarding in Michigan in high school. No. Yeah. Yeah. I went snowboarding for the second time during basketball season on Christmas break, and I broke my arm at Mount Whitehead, would that be? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we skied at Mount Holly, but yeah. Yeah. I broke my arm there. And by mount, you mean it had like 250 feet of gain and loss? I'm fairly certain if you nailed that run, you were down under a minute. Yes. For sure, yes. Which um, I never did. I found the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would go at night and just like mess around in the terrain park. Like they had a little terrain park that we'd mess around in, and like you, yeah, you're not really going there to ski or snowboard. You're going there to just like play in the park because it's the runs, like you said, are like maybe 200 feet long. Um, but but on spring break, we would go out west and enjoy, like, you know, the real, real mountains. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, is there anything else you want to tell us that you're not, you're hiding about any, like, sports you did or played? Like, what were you, am I missing anything? Um, what else were you adventuring? That's about it. I, I, I started dabbling in climbing in, in uh, college, too. I, um... I would occasionally go climbing at the gym there, but that didn't, I didn't really start actually climbing until I moved out West. And how successful was your club cross country? Were you just, you said it was a social exercise for you, but were you seen running success? Um, personally, like I, I would say I wasn't 
I wasn't like a key player on the team or anything, but the team as a whole was very good. Like, I think we won nationals a couple times. Um, it, they, yeah, they were really good. What distance are, is club nationals for cross country? Are you running 5K or 8K? We were running 8K, yeah. 8K? Yeah. And what were you running for times there, just, just for perspective? Oh, man, I don't even remember. <laughs> I remember, my, I think my 5K times were, like, just cracking, like, 20. Like, I wasn't very fast. Um, okay. Yeah. I don't remember what something Something changed between then and now. Yeah, it's it's um it's interesting to look back on it because like I always thought of myself as a decent runner, but um, I think I just never really had any coaches or anyone pushing me. I think it was all just like internal wanting to like be outside and compete, um, and so I didn't I didn't like know what my potential was. Um, that came pretty late for me. So you get done with college. And for perspective, I actually don't know this. How old are you right now? I'm 29. I'll be 30 in October. Okay. So you get out of college. You kept up your fitness in some capacity. You go into the corporate world immediately, as it sounds like. Maybe I'm wrong there. Yep. And like, what is your what happens with your athletic uh, journey there? So um, athletically, I I guess, again, it was kind of like... When I was working, I, I kept running. Um, I was especially like using running more as like a way for me to connect with people. Um, like when I moved out to Arizona, one of the first things I did was like find like running clubs and fitness clubs. And I joined a gym um, because I came out here. I came out to Arizona not knowing a single person. So it was like one of the one things I had that allowed me to like connect to people in the community. Um, and luckily moving out there, I was introduced to trail running pretty quickly, which like kind of opened my world. <laughs> um, Did I miss this before? What part of Arizona were you in? Phoenix. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Up until that point, like I had run a couple marathons. I had, I had actually run the Boston Marathon, um, and <laughs> freaking where do why did why are we what what do we do with her? <laughs> uh, this is just peeling back layers of an onion here. The, the slowest. I kept training. Ever. It was mostly social. Oh, I did run a few marathons. I ran. I qualified and ran Boston. That's right. But uh, so, is there anything yeah. else? Do you do you, do you want to get anything off your chest? That's why I asked earlier. <laughs> We should have made a list before we started this recording. Sorry. So you're running socially. How did how did marathons go? What, what, yeah. Who's going to so, force you to say times? What'd you run? I so my first marathon was actually I was actually in college. I ran the Chicago Marathon um, my senior year, and I think I was like just barely under four hours like it was it was not pretty <laughs> um but it was a starting point and um I swore I would never do another one after that as most people do um I didn't really enjoy it <laughs> um but I loved running and my friends were runners and um the same 
few girls who I stayed close with actually from high school, cross country and track. Um, like I'm, those are still some of my best friends today and we will occasionally go out and like run races together and stuff. So we all like kind of made a pact that at some point we would run the Boston marathon, um, like years ago. And so, um, they had qualified and they were like, okay, now you got to qualify and we'll all do it together. And so, um, yeah, I was living out in Arizona and I decided to sign up for the Detroit marathon, um, with the goal of qualifying for Boston. And, um, I barely slid under the like time, uh, the cutoff time. I think it was like th- 331 or something and I was like a second under that so it was I cut I really like was under the wire there but um yeah qualified and ran Boston and it was actually while I was training for Boston that I discovered Spartan Race so those kind of are like intertwined Brian Gawiski did the same thing oh yeah I, I, I met Brian a week I believe after he ran Boston, he ran like 2:42, and then he came out to a Colorado Springs for Carson race and ran well. And afterwards, he's like, "Yeah, I just, I just ran Boston about five, six days ago." Like, oh boy. So maybe, maybe there's a, maybe there's something there. Same type of person who signs up for Boston will find OCR. Yeah. How did you find OCR then? And how did Boston go? I guess first before we put the cart in front of the horse. Boston was rough. I ran. I've actually done it twice. The first the first year I ran was um what year? I think 2018. It was like the year where it was freezing rain yeah. and like where does one? Where does one? Yes. Um and so miserable. It was miserable. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea what I was getting into. Like Perfect I showed for up rain odds. Perfect for rain odds. Yeah. <laughs> My ideal conditions. There it um, is. I showed up like at the starting line in like baggy sweatpants and like a sweatshirt because like that's what people had told me to do. Um, like they were like, oh yeah, just like throw your sweatshirt off like at the start line. Um, yeah, bring something you can throw away. Exactly. Right? And so someone, I think, gave me, like, a poncho or a garbage bag, like, when I got there to throw over my, like, cotton clothes. (laughs) Um, But I remember showing up, like, getting to the start line, like, my feet were already drenched just from, like, walking from the bus to the start. And um, I didn't have gloves. (laughs) And so the race was, I mean, it started off well. Like, my first half... I think I like PR'd that half, like the first 13 miles, but then um, I hadn't consumed any nutrition until that point because my hands were numb and I couldn't open my zipper and I couldn't open gels. So I just went through that race thinking like, okay, I guess I'm not going to eat anything. Um, And it got to like (laughs) mile... 22 or something when finally I realized, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to finish this race unless I get calories in me. Like I was very, like very much hypothermic at that point. Um, I was drenched and I hadn't eaten a single thing. And so you wanted to skip over the story, Annie, this is what people need to hear. (laughs) 
yeah, so I got to I got to like the last few miles of the race and finally realized like, okay, if I'm gonna actually get to the finish line here, I need to do something. So I asked one of the um the volunteers at the water station to literally feed me a gel. <laughs> um, they like opened my pouch for me and like opened it and fed it to me because my, I, my hands were just like clown hands at that point. Like I couldn't do anything. So, um, so yeah, I got to the finish line, which was just like an achievement in itself. My time was not great. It was, I don't know, in the three thirties, but like I had high hopes of a huge PR at that race. And I knew I was really capable of running way faster, but the conditions just screwed me. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. So second time in Boston, how'd that go? Second time in Boston was okay. Um, still not my best marathon. It was, um, kind of the opposite. It was like hot, um, hot and humid, and definitely better for me, but still kind of struggled with that. And, um, I don't know. I think I ran like 316, I want to say. Um, you're getting down there though. Like you're, you're starting to become like a runner runner at that point. Yeah. So uh, the funny story is when I finished the first Boston race, um, I was so upset that I couldn't like, do what I wanted to do on that course that I actually on the plane ride home was searching up like what other marathons were coming up, um, in the next like month or so. And I just like jumped the gun and, and, uh, signed up for the Seattle marathon, which was, I think like a month later. Um, and so I just kind of like, tried to maintain my fitness like from that point until the next race and uh, I hadn't looked at the course map I just kind of showed up um like thinking oh it's just you know another marathon like I'm ready for this and I guess the course had like over like 2,000 feet of gain uh, it was super hilly and um not probably ideal like for running a PR but I um, ended up running like 311 or something. So I was stoked with that considering how tough the course was. So I think I probably had a lot more in me had it been like a faster course. But that was the um, kind of like once I found OCR, I was like, this is way more fun than running on the roads for hours. So I kind of gave up that whole marathon thing. <laughs> Can I summarize for you up to this point? I would like to do that. Basically, your entire life, at least middle school or high school on, as much as you've liked to slow play it, you were always training in some capacity, whether it was for life or an event. You were always <laughs> active. You were always making some sort of bank deposits. You were training, it sounds like, for something off and on for like a decade, <laughs> which we had to pull all of that out of you. So you've actually been doing a lot of things and you picked up rock climbing you were now like orienteering you were doing everything really that one can think of while still endurance training on a regular basis so you move you're doing your corporate job you're dabbling in marathons training for ocr maybe without even knowing it in a sense by combining all your skill sets correct yeah i would say so yeah okay 
Well, the way you had described it, I don't know, Bracken, you probably agree. It sounded like you were like a fitness enthusiast until we pry these nuggets out of you. And I'd say you're far beyond a fitness enthusiast. You were always training for something. So then where did that crossover happen? Yeah. So I would say I I definitely was. I, I still would say I was a fitness enthusiast. Like I never was like training. I was very much just doing what I love to do and being active in, in a way that that, that – was preparing me for what was to come, but I didn't know it at the time. What did preparing for a marathon look like for you then? Preparing for a marathon for me was like doing a long run um, once a week and then like kind of just getting what I could in around my work schedule. I would, um, I joined a gym and I would go to the gym on my lunch break every day um, like squeezed between meetings. Like I wouldn't just like go to the gym. Um, a lot of times, like not even like, sh- I-, I would maybe shower if I had time. If not, I would like run back to work and like eat my lunch in my car and then like get back into my meetings. Um, so it's kind of like crazy. And then living in Arizona, um, presents a whole new challenge when it comes to like being a runner because mm-hmm. more than half the year, um, the weather is really like rough. So you're, if, if you want to put in any sort of mileage, you're waking up well before sunrise. Um, and so like my long runs on the weekend were, you know, 3am wake ups. Like it was, it was like a long week of work and then like waking up really, really early on the weekend. But at the same time, I was like still in my mid twenties, like, kind of living it up. I was like still going to the bars on the weekend and um, meeting up with friends and trying to do it all. And so like nothing was very structured or serious. It was kind of like just cramming it all in as best I could on minimal sleep. (laughs) I would say like 3 a.m. wake ups kind of breach the fitness enthusiast category. (laughs) I, I could be wrong. Continue. Yeah. So, um, I would say the point where everything shifted was when I found Spartan and realized, okay, there's something that I never knew existed that now, like, I'm seeing for the, what felt like the first time in my life, something that I, like, felt like fit everything in my life that I had been doing up until this point in a way that I knew I could, like, I knew I saw a lot of potential in it. And I knew that um, it not only was I like pretty good at it naturally, but I also really enjoyed it. And um, I remember finishing the first race I ever did, which was just like an open race for fun, saying, I just want to go back and do it again, like, right after, like, I would, I would actually get through like the rig. And then Um, my friend who I was running with couldn't do any of the obstacles. So he was just doing burpees the whole race. And I would just go back through and do the rig again, like while I was waiting for him to finish burpees. So yeah, rub rub it in his face a little. Yeah, (laughs) it was, um, unbelievably fun. Like I remember finishing that race, just thinking like, Oh my God, where have I been? Like, how have I not known about this until now? Um, 
which is kind of sad to think about that like I could have started this years ago and who knows where I'd be now but um but it's it's still cool what what race and what year so my first race was Arizona um in 2018 so it was like I want to say like a month before I ran Boston I ran this um this first Spartan race and um funny story I actually um kind of developed a relationship with Steve Hammond at that race I went and volunteered um for the free race entry yeah I went to get the free I had heard that like oh if you volunteer you can get a free race entry and so um so I went and like was fortunate enough to get to be put with him marking the course and so we kind of chit-chatted and I learned about oh there's this like elite side of the race that I had never heard of and um and I kind of at the time I think I just kind of brushed it off I wasn't thinking anything of it but um when I finished on Saturday when I finished the race I went and found him and was all excited to tell him about how it went I had run a clean race aside from missing my spear and the super, um, the super. Yep. And he was like, Hey, I think, I really think that you should jump into the sprint tomorrow and run the elite race. And I was like, really? Like, I I don't know. I don't feel like I'm ready for that. Um, I didn't know. I didn't even really know what that meant, to be honest. Like, what does this elite, elite race, like, what does that even mean? And so I kind Mm -hmm. of went into it not knowing, like, I, I just did it. And, um, I ended up, I want to say I was like fifth, um, with a missed spear. Like I had like gotten past at the end by some people, um, you were missing spears since day one until since recently, day one. basically. Yes. Is that what I'm understanding? My, my spear percentage is <laughs> probably the lowest amongst all the elites, I would say. Um, Not in the last two races. <laughs> yeah. You know what's cool about what you're saying, though, is like how welcoming is our community compared to something? And that's yes. great. That was a great first entry, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was incredible. Like, especially, yeah, finishing that sprint race on Sunday there was definitely like a new, um, like everything, I feel like my entire life just like changed at that, at that, in that moment, because I now went from being like, I don't know, like kind of just like casually running these races and like enjoying it, like kind of taking it seriously, but also not like in a way. And then suddenly there was this like switch in my head where I was like, wow, I could be good at this. And like, I think I've finally found, and I think a lot of people in this sport feel this way. Like I'm, I'm not alone in this, but like I found something where, you know, I've never been the fastest runner. I've never been, um, like I've, I've just never been like the best at anything. I've kind of been like good at a lot of things, but, um, just like, you know, very like, middle to top of the pack and everything I've tried, but not, not like excelling in anything. And so this was the first time where I was like, Hey, if I like one, this is already coming to me pretty naturally, but two, like if I really dedicated like and trained properly and like got and like got everything down, like I think I could go really far. And so, 
um, the spark was definitely lit like after that race. I wanted to ask you personally, no, because she touched on something that's like you did a race and you knew, like you were like, oh my God, by the time you on your drive home, you were probably like already scripting out your training plan and I'm already emotionally committed. And I had the exact same experience, like mm-hmm. verbatim. I was like, why, why have I not been doing this for years? Bracken, did you have that experience? Cause you were in so early when, and so close to college track. I'm actually curious about that for you. hundred percent. Cause we, in college, we always used to joke. There are a few of us on our team that were athletic and a little heavier cause we lifted a little more. We mm-hmm. always said, if we could just do a, a mile with like 15 pull-ups between every lap, I'd be a national <laughs> champ. Yeah. Or if cross country mm-hmm. had like, I don't know, we, we'd always joke, like if you had to hit a, a free throw, a three pointer and a layup, <laughs> like one of those, those drills in between every mile, I think I just might win national. Like that was always our joke to, to, to make excuses for why we weren't going to nationals. But suddenly I found that in my first race and it was, mine was a little more difficult to go. I went in on it right away because that's what I do. If I find a competition that I'm good at, I just do it. But it was a little bit like a little bit embarrassing to go into at the time because it was such a young sport. It, at the first the start line of my first race was Hobie Call, Elliot McGuire, myself, like ten or fifteen jacked CrossFitters, and then a bunch of dad bots. That was it. <laughs> there were clearly only three people in the field who had ever run in any capacity, and mm-hmm. so it's like, yeah, well, yeah, I took second, but the good guy in the sport smashed me. And the rest of the people weren't actually runners. Like I took second because I could run. My spear twirled like a helicopter and my <laughs> arms were dangling at my sides for a quarter mile at a time because I couldn't lift them up. But so I was passionate about going in, but I didn't want to tell anyone. I didn't want to actually commit because it was, mm-hmm. it was absolutely not a sport yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until they were like, Bracken, do you want to let us pay you to be on the pro team? And then you were like, oh yeah, I'm all in. It's not embarrassing anymore at all, suckers. But even that was almost two years in. I did my first race in oh. 2011, and 2013 was the first year of pro team. So it was like my first, the first world championship I went to was my second race. So I raced in like September, and the first world championship was in December or something like that. And it was in Texas, and they were putting money on it. And I'm like, well, I'll drive down there because I'm going to win world championships. And Josiah Middaw came out and smoked me. You know, that was his first race. And so it was like, there were, you could always see at the start line, there were two to five people that were runners and the rest were not. So it was an embarrassing sport at the beginning to go in on where now it's, mm. there's established hierarchy in the sport and we've had Olympians come over and fail and we've had mountain running professionals come over and fail or stick around for three years and get good. But yeah, at the time I had that epiphany, but it wasn't a desirable epiphany at the same time. You had to curb your enthusiasm initially. Yeah, I didn't tell any of my buddies. Yeah. I was like, "No, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. I'm I'm going off and I'm going to run a, I'm going to jump in an open 800 on this weekend, and I go down to Indiana and run a Spartan race or something." <laughs> I, was, I trained. I if I did OCR workouts, I did them in the dark because it was embarrassing. I didn't want anyone to know. So we all have the same experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, we in- know instant love. That realization, like you said, that. We've always been pretty good at a lot of things, but we were never the high flyer in one. Yeah. And that's the critique of our sport. Not our sport. Our sport is running, but our specific niche, right. OCR. The critique is that, yeah, just keep adding more things in until you guys are good at something. Right. And I guess my response is, I didn't make the sport. I just show up. Right. If I went out and started a race tomorrow with only things I was good at, that'd be shameful. 
But no, this is a sport that's here. I didn't invent it, so who cares? Let's go be good at it. Mm-hmm. Did it change your training instantly? Were you like, I am writing a plan or I'm finding a coach or was your passion there, um, but it took a little bit to catch up your your pursuit of it? Yeah, it it was not instant. I remember like I was still just very much focused on running at that point. And then um, and I was also dabbling a little bit in like trail running as well, which um, definitely suits obviously OCR um, training and like learning how to run on trails and technical terrain and all of that. But, um, I didn't even really know like what was next. I remember getting an email like a week or two after that Arizona race that said like I had qualified for the North American championship race. Um, mm-hmm. and did it, it make you feel special? Yes. I was, I remember like showing all my friends. I was like, "Look at this! Like, like I qualified." And I had no idea what that meant. I was like, "Yeah, like cool." So maybe I'll go do it. Um, and they get you, don't they? They get you with that. that yeah. Email. They just—it's so funny how they do that. They do. They sure it works. do. It's They've really been doing good. it for ten years. Yeah. Those suckers. Continue. So, so yeah, I ended up going. Utah was my second race. Um, I ended up running age group instead of elite. I think. Well, and that was a U.S. National Series race, so yeah, I want to say that would have been a big one. Yeah, I want to say. I'm not sure if I like didn't qualify as an elite or I don't remember, but yeah, I ended up running age group just because like I didn't know, and I won my age group um, at that race. But I didn't know, like I didn't know until well after the race had ended because. Um, as you guys are aware, like when, when you're running age group, it's all like jumbled up and you're, there's tons of people everywhere and you don't know like who you're racing against per se. So the race, um, it was definitely a wake up call for me. Cause that was my first like mountain race and like running at altitude and all of that. So, um, OCR is a strange event and that yeah. in many events, you know, you're doing well while you're doing it. If yeah. there's no one around in OCR, if you're in a crowd, everything sucks either way, whether you're in first or last, it hurts. And there's not really an easy point of the course. You right. don't settle into a rhythm and then like crank it down at the end. So yeah, if you don't see that you're in first, your body feels like you're in 50th. Right. Right. It's very strange. It's like, I remember at one point someone asking me like, Hey, how like what what age group are you in? Like someone flying by me was like looked, you know, maybe they could be my, in my age group or not. Um and I was yeah, it was it was such a weird experience to like not know who your competitors are. But um How you feel in an OCR race is only dictated by what place you're in. Right. Right. Especially when it's like only your second race and you have no idea what you're doing. Like it, it was a whole new thing for me. Like I, I had never walked in a race really before that point. Like I had never hit an incline so steep that like it wasn't runnable. Um, that was a very new experience for me. I also had never, like, of course I had run, you know, cross country and stuff and where, we're not necessarily running on trail like it's kind of cross country is a weird thing especially in the midwest like you're running like on golf courses you're running on like in these metro parks where they kind of just like 
mark a section off. So it's not really trail running, but it's also not really like off trail. Like it's somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. It's not very technical Mm -hmm. aside from like maybe when you're running in the snow. Um, but, (laughs) but so this was a whole new thing for me to like run up a ski hill and then like down a ski hill without having like a trail to follow was really crazy um and so that i think that shocks everybody when that yeah. first happens doesn't it? it's such like an out of norm experience totally totally even clothing you like shoes and yep. top you almost never nail your first race because how would you know oh absolutely i had no idea that you should wear like tight fitting like compression gear. like i didn't even own that stuff i just wore like my regular running clothes um mm-hmm. so yeah it was crazy i left my shirt on course in my first race <laughs> disqualify him there were no rules back then i had a, a cotton cutoff it just kept getting sn- it was so wet and heavy yeah. going through the barbed wire and eventually it snagged on something and i just let it rip and pulled it off and threw it off to the side of the course and kept racing i'd cross country shoes on yep. without spike with the spikes taken off no nubs i couldn't make it up Oof. one of the hills i had to go off into the woods and pull my way up through the trees because i couldn't run up the muddy hill like it's like no wait, traction. your first one it's it's a it's yeah. a unfair fight i'm totally. gonna go back and get you expunged from those results you litter there were no rules i went back and grabbed it <laughs> okay okay and i have a left field question that's going to come back to this uh, we'll continue our train of thought but when did you create your instagram account my instagram like you, my handle, you mean? <laughs> you know what I'm getting at, yes. Yes. So that was that was when I went to South America. I uh, I I had a whole like blog going when I lived down there, and um, so I made the Instagram to go with it. <laughs> okay, because so Annie's handle is Mountain Goat Girl, I believe, which yeah. would imply that you've been running mountains your whole life. Like this is where you thrive. This is your backyard. I yeah. I feel comfortable here. And you ran up your first mountain in Utah in 2018. So I'm just trying to connect the dots there. That's all I'm asking. So, yeah. so point being, you got Instagram after that when you had already decided you were a mountain goat. No, no, no. The opposite. Like I, that was, it had nothing to do with running. It was all like <laughs> when I was climbing um, in the Andes for nine months, like I, I climbed um, like 14 of the peaks down there. And so I just like created this blog, Mountain Goat Girl, where I would write about like all my summits and stuff. And so the Instagram came with that. Yeah. (laughs) Although I didn't even use it. I didn't really use Instagram until like more recently, but I, I had it. Yeah. Well, you're probably the only runner who runs mountains, who is also good at mountains, who happens to coincidentally create a handle about mountains before they actually ran mountains. Yeah. I just find that, okay, that's amusing to me. Continue. You said Utah exposed a lot. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Because yes, we all get exposed really early in this sport because mm-hmm. we can't possibly, like you had two of the biggest skill sets necessary. You had running and you had climbing. Like your grip, that that's obviously super beneficial, but there's nothing tying them together yet. What, what was exposed in you? Yeah, I think, um, it's everything you could, you would think. So for example, um, like I talked a little bit about just like the terrain and not like, it was almost comical. I think for me to like, try and run, like trying to run up that mountain, like it was, 
it was silly. Like I was, I was trying to run parts that like you shouldn't, you shouldn't try and run. It was, it was too steep. Um, and then I would see like people walking and realize, Oh, maybe I should walk this part. Like maybe running isn't very efficient on this steep of an incline. Um, and then, and then like the carries were definitely another thing for me, just not being, um, like, I think I'm strong in the sense that I can, like, navigate. I have good, like, body awareness, and I can pull myself up good, and I, um, I'm i good with, like, a lot of the hanging obstacles, but a lot of the more, like, brute strength, just, like, pulling the hercoise, carrying a bucket on my shoulder, to be honest, still to this day is something that, like, I'm still trying to work on, and improve with because I feel very awkward like having to run underweight um and so that was totally new to me I had never done anything like that um and especially trying to do that on tricky terrain like down a steep hill or up a steep hill like all of that combined like I, I could do everything on its own but then when you put it all together and your heart rate's really high and like you feel like you're gonna throw up the whole time like I had never felt all of that at once before. So you got 2018. How did that end? And then how did 2019 go? If you want to walk us through all that. Yeah. 2018 ended really well. I, um, so yeah, I finished Utah and then I went and raced Tahoe, um, again in my age group and won my age group at Tahoe. Um, and I also like won like all the age groups, I guess, mm-hmm. if that's a thing. And so one, 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 yeah, one, one, one. Um, and so at that point, I think point, that's kind of, sorry, I don't, I kind of think that's important for people to hear because a lot of people enter this sport and they're like, well, if I can't run elite, then screw it. And now we have like a gated process. And sometimes there's pride. I feel like with like taking your lumps, starting in an age group and learning the sport and the course before you dive in. And I'm totally. just actually really impressed that you practice self-restraint there and first became a student before you made the jump. I think more people should do that. I think there's a lot of people in the elite field, if I'm being honest, even in the gated field, that don't belong. And so it's good to hear you you did that. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, I think I, I definitely wouldn't go back and change anything. I think it was really good for me to learn the ropes under like a lot less pressure. Um, I Running an age group, like, like I said before, you don't really know even where you stand in the middle of the race. So I remember in Tahoe, like, I was just focused on myself and, like, doing everything I could do to the best of, you know, what I had in me that day, um, getting through obstacles cleanly and, like, getting up the mountain, you know, as best as I could and, like, working the downhills and stuff. Um, I didn't there wasn't like other people on my mind because I didn't know who I was competing against in the field. So, um, to come out on top was a huge boost to my confidence because it wasn't like I had been running the race, like, um, chasing someone or being chased. I was just running comfortably. Um, and, and I still did well. So I think it gave me an opportunity to learn the sport without a lot of pressure on me. Um, and so now it's, now I'm at a point like in OCR where like, I'm starting to learn what the pressure is like. And I'm really glad that I now I'm a lot more familiar and confident in my abilities before, like 
I got all that got all that down before having to deal with that because um, it adds a whole nother component that can really trip you up in a race. Um, and I'm learning that. So I think, yeah, it was definitely good for me to get my, get my bearings right. Um, before trying to race the lead. What is that process like for you? Cause you haven't, oftentimes we have people on here and they talk one common thread throughout their life is their competitive drive. Mm -hmm. And I've really only heard you say one thing about that, which was after Boston, you were so upset with your performance, you found another marathon, but you haven't talked about how I just loved to compete or I was just a winner or like winning just drove me. We haven't heard that thread. So either you haven't discussed it and it's there or for the first time in Spartan, it's being drawn out of you. So that feeling of pressure, is this really the first time in your athletic life where you felt incredibly pressured or like a need to succeed or is this something you've dealt with before we just haven't heard about it yeah I would say so it's um I've always been competitive I definitely would say like from the time I was really young I was competitive Mm -hmm. like I was the kid who would get all like giddy the day of the like physical fitness test in elementary school like chasing the boys around the track like that was me um as a young kid but definitely as far as like competitive sports go um I think I always put like some pressure on myself even like in high school I would get really nervous um before the meets but never to the point where like I don't think anyone ever expected me to like win a race or um Like, I never had all that riding on me. The one thing I would say is, in high school, I was a lot of times the anchor for the 4x4 relay, and that was the one thing I can think back on where I remember being having all this pressure riding on me, because there were several meets where it came down to that relay, and... um, and I think part of the reason why my coach put me in that position, I wasn't the fastest leg by any means. Like I was running it with three sprinters, but um, I remember him telling me, "Like you are the one person who I who I know I can confidently put in this position, and you will leave it all out there, all out there, no matter what. Like mm. you're really gutsy." And so, um, I think I've always had that in me, but this is the first time where I'm maybe letting it like all come out. Um, yeah. So it's kind of cool to be like late. Like I never thought growing up or like in college or after that, like I'd have another opportunity to like let that part of me shine again. So it's really cool to have found something where, you know, I can, I can use that as fuel. <laughs> Gutsy is the right word, I think, that I would use to describe my impressions of watching your race in Utah and then again in in Asheville, where they were clearly, uh, like, some people can mask everything or some people don't get to this point. But on in Utah, you were clearly like, cracked on yeah. course, like, getting off and having to take a second because I'm watching thinking, I wonder if she's going to go down. Like, you were cracked. Yeah. And and you kept racing. You kept on it. And then in Asheville, a lot of a lot of women in our sport just lay down for Lindsay. Yeah. And you you seem like you wanted to just keep pushing her 
and re-raise her and I'm going to go at it. And I, I don't care that she's there. I'm attacking. And they just both felt like gutsy races. And it's it's funny to hear your your coach say the exact thing we saw here now, I don't know, almost two decades later, yeah. you know, <laughs> a decade and a half, that your racing doesn't seem to be hampered by nerves. We all feel nerves. Some of us become a shell of ourselves. You seem like you push back against them pretty well. Yeah, I would say so. I, I, I think in Asheville, the start of that race was really um, rough. Like I remember feeling this like really panicked, um, like nervous feeling inside of me, even like after, usually like I feel that way at the starting line, but as soon as the gun goes off, I'm kind of just in it and that goes away. But this was, I think the first race where that feeling lasted quite a while, actually, like it, it might not have shown, but I felt really nervous, um, for the first like two miles. Um, a fast start will do that. Well, you had a lot of time to think because it was downhill, so you weren't really hurting yet. Right. And you realized the intensity of like the effort was going to be high and everybody was bringing it. That's how I felt. I think everybody was thinking through like the first five or 10 minutes of that race because you knew it was going to get real and you knew everybody was there to play, but it hadn't gotten real yet. So the anticipation was like very nerve wracking. I I, I would say that's exactly what it was. Like it was, um, it was a pace that at first didn't, it didn't hurt, but it was uncomfortable enough that I knew like further into the race, it was, I was going to feel that. Like I knew I was fully anticipating the end of that race to be one of the most painful experiences of racing I've had until that point. I just knew it in my mind. And so I think Mm -hmm. that that was like sitting inside me and like just waiting to come out. And, um, and I didn't know, it was a really interesting race, like how it played out. It played out so differently than it did than it was going to in my mind. Um, and so that was kind of cool to watch it unfold and kind of like react to different things that were happening. Um, I was like proud of the way that I navigated it all. Um, but yeah, definitely like I would say Utah was it definitely showcased showcased my gutsiness and in the terms of just like pushing through a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And then Asheville was more of like a strategic, like cerebral, cerebral race for me, like trying to figure out, okay, I'm now in the lead. What do I do? Um, and how do I take this and run smartly? Because I've, I haven't been in that position a whole lot yet. Well, what I keep thinking and not to jump around too much, but, like there's one glaringly obvious thing we haven't spoke about yet, and that is, like, you've gotten way faster and way better, or at least put it all together at the right times. So like, you were talking about like let's say your 8K times in college. Well, I'll tell you what, a lot of women in this field had faster 8K times mm-hmm. in college than you did, right? Oh, yeah. And even your marathon times, although good, 3:14 is a great time. There's a handful. 3:11. Or three eleven, sorry, my bad. My, those those matter. Um, there's a handful of women who have, can and will and have run fat under three hours. Yeah, so obviously there's been like a huge fitness progression, and I would say all the other ancillary pieces you had pretty well put together, other than your spirit sounds like. So obviously, 
your running is what has propelled you maybe from one level to the next, or at least the type of running OCR requires. So like what I want to know is like, how did that happen? What have you done different? Your training that got you here. I feel like there's got to be something there that we can make sense of. Yeah, I would definitely, I would agree. My running has gotten so much better. I, um, I would say, yeah, if I went out and ran a marathon now, I think I could probably run, um, I think I would probably crack the three hour if I tried. Um, but, um, I think a lot of that has to do with just more structure. Like I, um, I started working with a coach, um, last year, but up until that point, it was more just me doing like trial and error. Okay. Like I would take each race and like figure out what went well and what didn't go well. And then like try and just plan for the next race based on those things. So like if I felt like my running was improving, then keeping with like the types of workouts I had been doing, um, maybe trying to like hit faster times, just like inching closer to like breaking down the pace a little bit more and then working on the more race specific components that go with like OCR. So whether that be like the carries or transitioning between obstacles or terrain, it's like a huge thing is just, you know, you can be really fast in this sport, um, like a fast runner, but we've seen so many, you know, track people and like cross country people come in and not, not be willing to put in the work to get good at the terrain and, and they ultimately don't really succeed. And, um, and I was, I was, I almost embraced that part. I said, okay, I'm not the fastest runner. How do I use this to my advantage? And so part of that was really just becoming good at like mountains and being good at climbing and then ultimately starting to work more on descending and more like technical stuff. And I think piece by piece, it started to come together. I don't think there was one specific thing that I changed that like made me from being like average to like, you know, top in the field. But I think like honing in little by little on each piece um, helped me become like overall faster. That's logical. Yeah. Well, it's like you, you obviously you became more fit because you were purposefully training. You were doing it on race specific terrain and you were consistent over time and you never mm-hmm. had gaps. So it's just like it, it was a slower build in fitness. It wasn't any big, like big pop. Like you knew this was, you knew these performances were probably in you. It was just maybe a matter of time until they happened sort of thing. I think so. Yeah. I think it was just more focus and like having more specific goals and, um, and like really work, like actually dedicating time to working on them. Um, it's, I mean, it's very simple, but that's, you know, the reality of it. And what, what those ingredients lead to are successful races, Utah, yeah. Asheville. But then there's that, that concept of like, you can't win until you've won. You don't know how to win races until you've won. Yeah. And, and watching Asheville, it was, you looked great, but there was like that little visual of the way I remember feeling the first time I led an OCR race, which is very different from leading a normal race because a normal mm-hmm. race, if you have a lead, you just maintain the lead mm-hmm. and you make sure you win. But in OCR, you have to run and try to build up a burpee gap. Mm-hmm. Like you need yeah. an obstacle gap. And that the question becomes, do I push all out to get that gap 
or do I have confidence that I'm not going to give up time on obstacles and then I can just run in order to not blow up. And it kind of felt like Lindsay won that race, A, because she's an incredible, she's the best in the world, but B, because she knew multiple ways of winning that race. And it almost felt like you were feeling out in the moment, how exactly do I run with the lead in OCR? Is that is that correct? And I hope that doesn't sound patronizing. No, not at all. I think I think that's completely correct. I think I used a lot of my energy early in the race. Um, and I think as, as much as I've improved with my running and um, my obstacle efficiency and all of that, there's still a lot more that I can do to improve on all that. And Lindsay has mastered it. Like she, I think that she could have given even more in that race had it been like, had she needed to probably, I mean, I don't know if she'll, she would say that, but I, I believe that it's true. Um, and I think I just have a little bit more to learn and to improve on. Um, and yeah, as far as like leading a race, especially on that big of a scale, it's, it's uncomfortable for sure. And like, it's, it, it has you questioning in your mind a lot. Like, um, am I leaving enough for the obstacles at the end? Am I not going hard enough? Like I could, I, I didn't know, but I, I did kind of know that the gap was closing. Like I didn't know for sure, but I like had a really good idea that it was. And then as the race played out, I, I knew for a fact that the, that the gap was closing and, um, it became just a little bit too late for me to change it, um, at that point. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. well, you, you didn't necessarily grab the lead. Their lead was given to you. Yeah. And that's almost worse sometimes where when you've been in that position a lot, it's like, Oh, I'm up here earlier than I thought. Lindsay had talked about that at a world championship one year. Yeah. She's like, Oh, I got here. I planned on being in first, but not this early. Yeah. And it was a little disconcerting to her, but she's been through that now where sometimes, you take the lead because you're making a charge and you know, I have this amount of energy to get through the end and I'm just foot on the gas, nothing but that till the end. But taking it earlier, it starts playing with your mind of, do I need to push like I was supposed to be leading or do I need to wait? Or, And you felt that out. So now going through that whole process, do you feel more prepared for, let's say, West Virginia? You find yourself in the lead. Are you ready? If you had to redo that race, could you win it now? Um. I want to say yes, but mm-hmm. to be honest, like I've thought about this a lot and I think there's there's always like the piece of me that's going to wonder, like did I really leave everything out there? I felt like I did in the moment, but watching it back, like I've watched that like last section back quite a few times and um and I feel like I can see in my face and my body that like I kind of was giving up like I felt like really? there was just like a little didn't bit look like that to me yeah when you stumbled across <laughs> the finish line I don't know I feel like there was a little piece of me that like could could hear her and feel her closing in on me and I just knew that she was a stronger closer than I was and like accepted that and hmm. um but that was your assumption yeah that I mean We've all been there. You anticipate the blow landing, and so you allow the blow to land. Yeah. You know what I was told about the uh, about the burpee and, like, you were, in quotes, given the lead suddenly. You, oh, I'm in the lead. 
Ryan Atkins said something interesting once when he was given a lead that way, and it was something along the lines of, if you're given a lead early in a race, like that's actually the time to conserve and catch your breath because you know you're going to need the push later. It always comes. Mm. But if you get that lead surprisingly in like the back third of a race and it happens, then it is like I'm going to my 10 out of 10 level to gap and get out of sight and give them no hope. But mm-hmm. early on, it sounds like you should almost like take it as your chance to breathe before you know the inevitable push happens again it was just an interesting thing and i can kind of buy into that theory i don't know if that makes sense to either of you bracken it sounds like you wanted to respond to that but it makes sense to me i mean it's it's that's the the gamble that everyone plays and we've seen him lose because of that we've seen him win because of that or someone grabs the lead and i've i mean it happened to rose one year in tahoe right every female failed uh either a rig or a monkey bar and she ran alone for like six miles and then eventually it caught up. And the question is always, did I charge too hard out of excitement or was it inevitable? And and those are the things well, yeah. you can't know until you've raced. And well, so, and the yeah, reason- it's, I was going to say, is Annie got it out of the way. Like, she's got that now. She went through it once. Yeah. I'm sure she's gone back through and been like, you know what, maybe on that carry, climbing up that hill, maybe I revved it a little bit yeah. too much. Because I knew I had the pace and I knew that I wanted to drop off before they saw me or whatever it was, knowing were those seven seconds worth 15 in the last mile? I don't That's just mm-hmm. that's just an assumption. But I'm sure you've gone through the race and identified where did I imbalance the equation? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to finish my thought real quick. And that was that when it comes to then you realize you were in the lead. Was it like uh, my afterburners are on, holy shit, and you like burned a proverbial match a little bit too early? Like like we talk about the end of the race. Did I have enough at the end of the race to outkick Lindsay or beat her? But if you had to reflect on that moment, she drops, you're in the lead, and you're like, what did you do with that next three minutes? Keep your effort or did you – that surge of adrenaline you used and then it caught up to you later? That's actually the pivot point I think is what I want to know. Yeah, um, it made it hard when going from, like, getting off the monkey bars and going into the sandbag carry right away, like, as much as I wanted to just get out of there, like, all I wanted to do was just, like, pick up the pace and go, Um, but, like, there was only, I don't know, like, 100 meters maybe between those two obstacles, and um, so it's, like, okay, you can, like, run really quickly, but then you're stuck with the sandbag that you got to, like, drag through the forest for a few minutes, and there's no, there's not really, like, a ton that you can do in that position to make the physical gap larger. Like, you can, you're obviously You couldn't get out of sight. Yeah, you're gaining ground in the sense that, like, she's also going to be put in that position and have to drag the sandbag through the forest, but, like, it doesn't, it didn't feel like I had gained a ton of ground, um, which was, it was a little bit defeating to feel that way. And then like, and then go straight from that into the bucket carry where, which again, like, you know, you go around and make that turn, but you're still, you're still in that same section of the course. You're still like, I could still see the monkey bars. I could still see the sandbag from the start of the bucket. And it, it's like mentally tough when you 
like all you want to do is just go and get out of there and but you're stuck in this position where you have to just like go through the movements and you're not really moving fast in those carries um as much as you want to so i think had it been a different part of the race that that happened um i think the outcome might have been a little bit different i think the carries for me were a struggle in Asheville. They were heavy. They were, um, the the bucket in particular was pretty long and, um, I just didn't, I just didn't have an opportunity to just get the gap that I really felt like I needed to. Um, like had it been, had it been right after the bucket with that long running section and then into the uphill and then into the gauntlet, I think I could have really done some damage and like just getting out of sight getting up that hill before she could even see me and then just going through it um there's something to say about getting out of sight and the problem with that is is that Lindsay was able to keep her hope very much alive because you were 10 feet away from her at points as you're returning the sandbag and she's picking hers up she's like I'm still in this thing and if you had a course you're right where you could have gotten out of sight would she have pushed when she needed to as hard? It would have been exactly. hard for us to do so. So that's kind of a tough draw. Now that I forget about the course layout, but I see how that played out. You probably felt like you barely had a gap. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. I don't want to harp too much on this race because it comes off sounding negative when it's an incredibly positive result. And I think really launches you forward in the sport. I think that the the fitness and the confidence you gain from this type of event trumps like any other workout you can put in but i sometimes find in trail racing or the sport of ocr when you're off the beaten path it's somehow difficult to to dictate or or to convince yourself that you're running at the pace you're supposed to be running at because you can't see your pace and know what it means and many times you're running in a pack of other women you're like i know this is a hard effort Mm -hmm. and suddenly they're not there and you're running thinking would I be running faster than this in training? Would I be running this fast with them next to me? Am I running too hard or do I need to try harder? Did you hit some of that in that long running section after the carries? Totally. Yeah. I think, yeah, when I put the bucket down, um, that, that took a lot out, out of me. Like at that point in the race, we were, we were getting close to the end and like I, I could taste the end in sight, but at the same time we still had like, um, probably like two miles, um, something like that left. And a lot of like up, uphill, um, we had gone down a lot at that point. And then like, we had some uphill to do and I had to put in work. And like, normally I think that's the point in the race where I would probably do the most damage is like those longer uphills. Um, especially in a shorter race where there's not a ton of them. So that's a point when I wanted to, you know, put in the work, but I felt so fatigued from the bucket that my legs felt kind of like heavy and jello-y and I just didn't have, I didn't have the power that I wanted to coming up that hill. It was like, it was more just keep moving, um, at as hard as I could, but like, I just, I wanted to be faster and I just didn't have it in me. Yeah. That sentiment was shared by a lot of us, I think, at that point in the race. So I I don't think you were alone there. Um, Bracken, did you have a follow-up question? Otherwise, I want to just pivot slightly. Yeah. uh, Just that when we 
as I'm sure you're aware, Rich, Jack, and I did that fantasy OCR draft for an episode. Yeah. <laughs> and then we did it again for the next one. And and I had you on my list of people I want to pick if they're available. Uh-huh. And Rich had you as someone I'm picking early because she's ready. So he obviously knew something I didn't. And I guess I undervalued how high your ceiling was because it just felt like you were too new. Generally, we see either an immediate big splash and then they stay there or this rise up. And I had, I guess, missed your rise, which probably says more about me than you. But he knew you were ready. Like He knew Utah. He said before we were going over ours off camera, he's like, honestly, I won't be surprised if Annie wins. And I mean... You were very close. And then in it, going into Asheville, I guess in my mind, maybe it's because of your Instagram handle, I thought, I just don't know how well she's going to do on this style of course because she's more of a, a mountain goat girl. And suddenly you performed, you know, play t- percentage of winner even better. So were you as confident as him coming into these or were these the things you needed to believe in your OCR ceiling? Yeah, I knew... I definitely was like a podium contender going into Utah. I thought um, I thought if I was going to do it this year, it was going to be at a mountain race. Like that tends to be, I don't know if it's just in my head or if it's the reality or what, but like I've t- just in the past tended to do better at like the more mountainous courses despite not living the mountains. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just... I think part of it's just like I'm not as I don't have the foot speed that a lot of the other girls do. So like Jacksonville's hasn't gone well for me. Um, I mean, it's gone it's gone okay, but not I never thought I could like podium at a race like that. Um, But Utah was like the first race where I thought, you know, it's a real possibility. Like it's a longer race. It's going to require a lot of like mental toughness, which I think I have. it's, you know, a lot of climbing, a lot of uh, nice, like, well, there are some pretty steep technical descents, but there's also a lot of, like, nice running, which I think is what I do the most in my training, is just, like, the the groomed, like, nice trails and that kind of stuff that we have out here in California, and so I felt pretty confident about it. The only thing was the altitude, and that, you know, I have days when I'm running at altitude where, you know, it totally destroys me like from the get go. And then I have some days where it barely affects me. And so it's kind of like luck of the draw on the day and how I'm feeling. So, um, I just went into it pretty confident, but at the same time knowing like it was going to be painful and it was like, I had to just accept that I was going to, it wasn't going to come to me. Like I was going to have to work for it. And I, I made the decision to do that. So, but did you believe that would carry to Asheville? Um, I think coming into Asheville, I, I definitely had like a boost in my confidence after having finally podiumed, but it, to be honest, I wasn't recovered from Utah as like, I think a lot of people one shared and also like could see, I actually got like kind of sick after Utah and then um and also just like I was having some calf like residual calf soreness and like tightness from like all the cramping and stuff so coming into Asheville I was like hoping 
that it would all come together, but I really had no idea. I thought it was like a total crapshoot on how that race would go because um, I wasn't recovered. And also like the East Coast races always tend to be a little bit more tricky in terms of like not knowing what the obstacles are going to feel like when they're wet, not knowing like how muddy it's going to be. That course in particular, I could, I remember hearing like, if it rains, it's going to be like Seattle. If it's dry, it's going to be more like Utah. Like I heard that it could be like totally one way or the other. So I didn't really have a ton of expectations. I was just going to piggyback what you'd ask Bracken with the fact like it might've been a little bit of a case and not paying attention because um, you say when somebody consistently performs in a certain place and they've done it enough time, what's next. And that means right. it's just a matter of time till it pops. And you were consistently in that like fifth to 10th range constantly. I feel like in any big races, weren't you? And so this was sort of your moment. Weren't you even like seventh or something or in Jacksonville or six with a miss spear? Whatever yeah, I was, was. Six, uh, yeah. sixth, I think, with the Miss Beer. Yeah. So, and then last year, I th- when we did race, or in 2019, you had some placements in the top 10, correct, I believe, or close to it. So yeah. if you really look at it. I, and I knew, though, like, we, I did my, I track my results. Like, I knew she was always top 10, but we, we can say that about several women in the yeah. sport. Sure. And and we keep saying, like, we're waiting for that person that's that's not afraid of the moment and jumps up to that next level because we have... Like Lindsay Nicole, and then we have the rest. And like Faye will jump up at times, and Alyssa has jumped up at times, and Rose has jumped up. And we've had people, we've had people up there doing it, but we haven't had someone who just like back to back to back races is clearly right up there, and suddenly Annie is. And yeah. so, I, and again, maybe, may, again, maybe that is on me, but it was just, it, it felt like suddenly she's taken that next step. And so, I guess the final question to that piece is do you believe it? Like, do you believe you are in that realm? I'm not asking you to brag about yourself, but do you have the confidence going into the next few races saying, I'm not racing, I think I can make a podium. Like, I'm here to race for the win. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, a part, a part of that is just telling myself that until it, yeah. until I believe it. And so I'm just going to keep telling myself, hey, if you, if you, like, you want to be serious about this, you have to just go into it not seeing anyone as like, I can't say that Lindsay's in like a different realm. Like I have to say she's just the person ahead of me and I'm going to chase her. And, you know, but yeah, I think I have to just keep telling myself that like if, if you, if you go into a race thinking, okay, Lindsay's obviously going to take it or Nicole's obviously going to take it. And then we're all just fighting for second or third then that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like you're, you're never contending for that top spot. But, and I've talked a lot with, you know, my coaches have been a huge help, Rich being one of those people, um, as well as like, I've talked to some uh, sports psychologists about this too, where like you, you know, Lindsay at, Lindsay at one point was where I am. Like she was, um, she wasn't always number one. And she put a lot of hard work in. She got a lot of help from a lot of people. It just happened to be earlier in the sport when, um, like, maybe it wasn't, like, maybe there wasn't that big barrier that it was like she had to crack this person who seemed invincible. Um, 
she just she could just work her way up to that top and now I think there's a lot of people in the position that I had been in where we kind of thought in the back of our head like oh those top couple spots aren't you know like uh, aren't feasible because they're just on a whole nother level um Mm -hmm. and it's really easy to think that way when it's just consistently like Lindsay Nicole Lindsay Nicole Lindsay Nicole but then like I I don't know. I think I think something switched in me where I said, you know what? Like why not try and crack that? Like why like why do I think I'm incapable of it? Like I think I've had some workouts that have shown like I can hit some fast times and I can um I can prove myself on a course like a Utah course in particular. I think really suits me. Um so I think that that was just like the one, the the opportunity where I had like that glimmer of like maybe I could do it today, and if I don't, then like what's the worst that happens? I blow up and then I try again another time. So like you, I guess you just have to be willing to take the risk, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that everyone does sees it that way. No, but it's a freeing yeah. thing. Like you said that with a smile. Yeah. <laughs> Once you finally realize, okay, if I concede to them then they beat me. Right. Right. If I show up knowing they're going to win, then they won. And if I show up saying I might be able to beat them, you might blow up. And what happens? The same thing. They win, but you're in it. And especially in our sport, who do we have that just talked about this? Chris Brown. Sometimes just getting out in that first pack and getting away a little bit means you stay away. That even if you fade, you stay away. And that's, that's a powerful thing to finally realize it's freeing. I don't have to concede to anyone. I'm going to go out and be in it, and we'll see what happens. Totally. Have you had any, like, hint of imposter syndrome? Because people really do experience that with their first breakthrough. They break through, and they do it, and suddenly they're receiving accolades and impositions, and they're like, I feel like an imposter. How did I get here? Have you had any of that, or has work has you worked through that already? Oh, 100%. I still feel that way. I think, like... There's a a part of me that, you know, for the Asheville race, like, I'm I'm not going to ever let up the fact that, like, I think that Lindsay was having an off day. I think that she, like, lost a little bit of her obstacle game when, you know, Jim shut down and she wasn't focusing on it. And I think that was, like, an opportunity for me to, you know, take her down a notch maybe, like, and just use my strength in that department um to try and like um close Mm -hmm. that gap a little bit but there's definitely a part of me that's like all right had Lindsay been like on her game that day and like you know running the way she wanted to and running clean and you know getting through things smoothly like would that have would it have even been close like I I just I'm left wondering um and it's it's tough not to. It's tough like when someone doesn't run a clean race because I've been on the other side of that too. I've had bad days when like I felt like um, a race was taken from me because you know I made a stupid mistake or I just you know did something silly you know or you know missed an obstacle for whatever reason. And um, I don't necessarily think it's always. <sighs> It's always with this sport. It's not always fair, you know, and that's part of the the nature. Well, well it's but. fair. It's fair. 
it's, it's just fa- yeah it's fair but it why do we do that to ourselves in this sport it's always like why do we have to put an asterisk by our own performance right. it's tough we all do it right. you know what one of the best things i was ever told or maybe a best realization i ever came to because i don't remember where it came from but it was after a, a similar race where i had the race of my life but someone missed a spear mm-hmm. it's like well you only were there because someone else should have been yeah and the, the takeaway was how many people were in position to take advantage of that mistake? Like in Asheville, you were the only one that even took advantage of it. Right. So maybe was she off? Possibly. But there was only one person qualified to take advantage of it. Like the fact that you were there means that you're at the table. No one else was, was even sitting at the table with you two. So if, her, if she's on her top day, does she maybe beat you by more? Maybe. Do you still take second place? Yeah. That realization that I can't control them, but I can control the fact that I was even sitting there at the table when she fell off. Mm-hmm. You're at the table. You can't control their bad. It's that no one else was fit enough or on enough or in it enough to even benefit from a potentially weakened Lindsay. And I think that's that big takeaway that really is helpful for people. Because if she was really so vulnerable, she would have taken eighth. Right. Bracken, you've been doing this long enough where it's like, you take this shit where you can get it at this point. Like, this <laughs> sport is full of ups and downs. And you take no responsibility over other people's actions and performances because somebody missed their spear and, and you were in the race. I also saw that happen to you, Annie. You lost two races in a row in Las Vegas, both days at the very end. And I didn't see those girls being like, yeah, well, I only won because maybe they did to you, but I don't know. I don't care how you end up in the position you end up. This is a course where a lot of things can go wrong and right. And it's like a narrative I wish we could like all let go of. And nobody really does. I have to work on that. Yeah. The, yeah, buts. And we don't have mechanicals in our sport. Like when we have things go wrong, they're physicals. Right. It's not like she flatted mm-hmm. out. And the other thing is the, ca- the check, it cashes the same. That check hits your bank account. That podium <laughs> picture, it, it cashes the same. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, we, uh, we've gone wild now. This is good. It's been fun chatting. I just want to know, we got to work towards wrapping this thing up, is uh, I, I'm expecting to see you at the rest of the U.S. National Series races, West Virginia, Tahoe, da-da-da, but I don't really know. What are you doing the rest of the year? Where can people see your smiling face next? Yeah, it's looking like I'm going to be in West Virginia. I wasn't planning on it, but I... Um, yeah, I, I think I, I think I got to do it at this point. I'm, um, I think I'd be leaving me. An idiot if you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, part of me just wants to like take a break from racing for a few weeks, but at the same time, I think, I think if I didn't show up, I would probably be leaving something on the table. I'd be wondering like, what if, what if like is. Here's the thing. If you, sorry to interrupt, but if you don't show up. Lindsay automatically wins the series. Right. If you show up and happen to have a race, that's off the table now. Yeah, that's true. So think of it that way. That's true. We, Kirk and I get asked this a lot because we coach this sport and running. Should I show up to the people? A lot of times people feel compelled, either a sponsor or Spartan themselves or whoever their competitors say, you just need to go after this. Mm-hmm. I think you owe it to yourself. 
you've earned a place again at mm-hmm. the table and you've put yourself in a position to succeed. So I can understand you planning your race season, not having West Virginia on there. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have either, but you're in position to do something kind of cool. And I'm, <laughs> I don't know. I would say envious of that in a positive way. I think there are what two people in North America right now who are in your position as a female. Yeah, I think I think West Virginia will be cool. I think there's a, a lot of us, um, I want to say like in Utah, there was a decent amount of people who didn't show up. And then I want to say in Asheville, there was also some people who didn't show up. And it sounds like what I've been hearing is West Virginia, most people are going to be there. So I think that will be uh, exciting to see. I think the women's field is super interesting right now. I think maybe having done what I did in Asheville, might give some other people a little bit more of a push to to try and you know crack through that mm-hmm. that like whatever you want to call it glass ceiling or whatever that barrier is that a lot of us have um I hope so I want I just I want it to be a a fun race I want it to be exciting I I don't want it to be like you know the typical like uh, everyone knows how it's going to turn out. Like I want it, I want it to be a shakeup. And I think um, the more that the more that all of us show up, the more that all of us commit and take the risk, the better the sport's going to be. For sure. As much as yeah. Lindsay and Nicole have launched the sport forward, kind of on uh, how Rose and Amelia did back in the day, they can only take it as far as the rest of the field comes with. And so your performance in Asheville and Utah, I think, bring the sport as far forward as they do leading from the front. Because now every female who ever beats you or could see you during a race says, why not me? Right. And, and that's, totally. like, that's what you're talking about. Now you have five, six, seven women who are all thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, we can, we can all be in that spot. And that's when the sport gets fun for yeah. everyone who's not feeling what you're going to be feeling with two miles to go in the race, trying to fight people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any other races then after that this year that you're committed to? So I'm pretty committed to doing Tahoe. Um, I still, I like, I'm still hesitant just because part of me, part of me wants to also do OCRWC, but I think this year it makes more sense for me to do Tahoe. I haven't quite gotten the experience that I'd like on harder, more like technical obstacles going into a race like OCR Worlds. Um, I was hoping to do a couple Savage races this year, but it kind of just, it kind of just got away from me. I, I just like couldn't make it work with my schedule. Um, so I'm hoping next year that would be more of a focus for me to just get in some more like new, um, like non-Spartan races and get the confidence that I would want going into something like OCR worlds. Um, but yeah, so Tahoe I think is going to happen for me. And then, um, I don't know, maybe Abu Dhabi. I haven't really thought about it, um, too much. I also don't know like with the world, if like, if that's really happening, I, I hope it does. I think it'd be really fun to go out there. Um, as you probably guessed, I'm a pretty like adventurous person and the idea of going to that part of the world totally intrigues me. Um, I think it'd be super fun. So we'll see. Excellent. Yeah. I got nothing left. What about you, Bracken? 
Oh, this is some episodes we get done and we're ready to be done. This is one I feel like a part two needs to happen. <laughs> and I say that f- more often than not, but I feel like we, we got to know a fraction of Annie today. But for f- for now, that's good. I think people have a, a, a better idea of who she is, why she's here right now, and she's going to have a whole contingent of people in her corner for West Virginia. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate your time today. See you in a few weeks. All right, I'll see you there. All right, thanks, Annie. Thank you.